Hello, everybody, uh, and Kia Ora. Welcome to today's session uh, in which we will talk um, about mid-block crossings for pedestrians and how to plan and design them. Uh, we have more than 800 people registered for today's session, so thank you all for your interest, um, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, um, and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Um, so we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations um, to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today uh, was delivered under the Transport Network um, Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. So a little bit of housekeeping. Um, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Um, today's handouts um, on the right hand side of your screen in the handout section of your sidebar, you will find the report today's session is based on, presentation slides, um, navigation graphic that explains how to find pedestrian content in the Austro's guides um, and the crossing design elements handout. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any time during the webinar. And if you can also name the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us. Um, you can also use that same box if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. So um, leaving the session, closing the browser and rejoining uh, the webinar via your registration link usually helps. Um, this session is also uh, being recorded, so we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Um, and if you listen to podcasts, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. So our presenters for today are Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Worth from Ebley. We will first hear from Jeanette. Uh, she's a technical director at Ebley. Um, she's a member of the People and Places team. She has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range of perspectives and a specific interest in street design. Jeanette uh, has been involved in a range of industry guidance projects. Um, and as a practitioner, she understands the level of detail people require uh, for various topics. And our second presenter is Anne-Marie Head. She's an Associate Director and, um, at Ebley and also is a member of the People and Places team, uh, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. Anne-Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and understanding the multiple benefits these uh, modes bring to individuals, the community and the planet. So a warm welcome to our presenters, and I will now hand over to Jeanette. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thanks, Ekaterina, for that introduction. This webinar is one of a series of seven webinars about planning and designing for pedestrians. This month, we are presenting five of the webinars. Our first one on Tuesday was about road space allocation. You can see the topic titles and dates here for the upcoming webinars. These next few slides are about the project. Anne-Marie covered off a lot more detail on Tuesday's webinar, so we won't spend as long as that. But I will briefly thank um, Robin Davies and Michael Landon from Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads who promoted the inclusion of training webinars in the scope of this project. We are hoping that this suite of seven webinars really brings the key principles to life when planning and designing for districts. And we'd also like to thank the jurisdictional representatives that form the Ausroads Working Group for this project. The research phase for this work was carried out in 2019, and we recognise that new techniques and practice are evolving all the time. There have been a few other relevant research projects uh, published since we completed our work. Of relevance to this webinar today is the research and guidance on race safety platforms, which can include crossing facilities. There is a webinar scheduled on the 4th of March for that, so do register for that as well. Just a note that, there, that OSRO's developed guidance with input from jurisdictions, and it's acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for some topic areas. Anne-Marie presented this slide on Tuesday, but just to recap, that the changes to the guide to traffic management were completed when those parts were updated last year. 
We have also identified changes and additions to content within the guide to road design, and these will also be made in due course. As uh, Ekaterina mentioned, there are some handouts for this webinar. This is just a um, shot from the navigation graphic, which is designed to help you find what you're looking for with regard to pedestrians. This graphic is available for download. And also, because the guide to road design content hasn't been integrated yet, we provided a handout that provides some more guidance on the design requirements and principles for different crossing types that Emery will talk through with you. But the handout will just allow you to, to gain a little bit more detail on that information. So today's webinar is about how to ensure crossings for pedestrians are planned and designed appropriately. We have also indicated where to find the guidance in OSRITS. This is mainly the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6 and Guide to Road Design Part 4. We've included references in the bottom left-hand corner of the slides and used colour coding to indicate if the guidance is existing or updated or brand new. A reminder that there are design-related updates to come but the bulk of these um, have been included in the webinars. And just noting that the, the guide to road design parts and series or section numbers that we might quote may change in the near future as those parts are currently being pre-framed. We will also present some project examples today to illustrate what we're talking about, but these are not included in the Austrian's guides. Most walking trips will require crossing at least one street. Crossings for pedestrians are an integral part of what we, what should be a connected and continuous walking network in our urban areas. A key principle to remember is that a safe system for pedestrians when crossing is to either separate them from vehicles or ensure vehicle speeds at 30 k's or less. We talked a bit about the vulnerability of pedestrians in a collision with a vehicle in our first webinar last year. Please watch that if you'd like to know a bit more. This webinar will focus on the planning and design of safe and appropriate pedestrian crossing treatments at mid-block locations. Our webinar next Tuesday will build on today's webinar with a focus on crossings at intersections. In our road space allocation webinar earlier in the week, someone asked about the design considerations to deal with with regard to pedestrian distraction, such as from mobile phones. There is actually an Austro's research report on this, which we've got the link to there. This was published a few years ago and it provides some insights into common, common risky behaviours and suggests education, enforcement and engineering countermeasures. Essentially, a lot of what we're talking about in our webinars will cover off some of those engineering aspects that help mitigate the risk of distracted pedestrians. For example, separating pedestrians from vehicles either in time or space, or ensuring vehicle speeds are low where pedestrians are present. However, the research that was undertaken did note that separation in space is often impractical in a lot of situations in the transport networks in Australia and New Zealand, especially outside of the central urban area. So separation in time might be more applicable as a mitigation. It's also worth recapping here on the nine characteristics that make up a walkable environment that we also covered in our first webinar last year. As crossings are an integral part of the walking network, these characteristics also apply. I'll give you some examples to illustrate this. So crossings should be legible, in other words, obvious to people walking as well as other road users. And well-located crossings on pedestrian delight Sirelines with minimal delay are going to be convenient for pedestrians to use. We will be covering off a wide range of crossing facilities and treatments in this webinar. These can be described as those, as those that help people to cross but don't give priority to them. We've named these as non-priority crossings. These are sometimes called crossing ads. Then there are crossings that give priority to pedestrians, either by giving them the right of way over vehicles, such as a zebra, or allocating time for them to cross, for example, at mid-block traffic signals, or removing the conflict altogether by grade separating the users. We will also briefly touch on crossings for children and railway level crossings. Just note that we have not included courtesy crossings in the updated guidance, as we found through discussion with the working group that these types of crossings were not generally used in Australia. 
So New Zealand attendees, just note that guidance on courtesy crossings will be released shortly with the update to the pedestrian planning and design guide. So, what are the things you need to think about? When you are looking at these questions here on the slide, it's important that you look at network and traffic management considerations like what is the function of the street? What does the vehicle traffic use it for? Secondly, what is the surrounding land use and place value and therefore the likely pedestrian activity? What types of people are expected to use the crossing? For example, if it's close to a school, you should expect children to use the crossing. Also consider what types of trips the pedestrians are likely to be undertaking and therefore the level of service they are likely to want. And again, we talked about level of service for pedestrians in our first webinar last year. Finally, as crossings are part of the network, it's important to consider the relationship to other crossing opportunities and the types of facilities at these. Here is an example of the contextual considerations that need to be taken into account when deciding on the appropriate treatment. This is an example of a small rural town where the highway goes through the town. The population might be residing on both sides equally. And maybe there's only a school on one side. This means students need to cross the highway to get to and from school. There may only be pedestrian refuges. Um, this one here you can see is being used by children on their way home from school. Roads of this nature can carry high proportions of heavy vehicles, sometimes over 10%. These can include logging trucks, dairy tankers, or in the case of the picture, farm machinery. The speed limit might be 50 k's and may have an operating speed a little over this. Crossings of these types of roads can be lightly used throughout the day but get quite busy before and after school times. Many of the children using these may have been on bicycles or scooters and younger ones may be escorted by a caregiver. This kind of scenario demonstrates there's a huge range of factors that need, you need to think about when considering the appropriate crossing treatment. Sometimes a crossing treatment may need other works either, either side of the crossing to be undertaken, for example, to help raise awareness of the upcoming crossing or to reduce speeds as drivers approach the crossing. So it's important to select a suitable crossing facility based on a couple of things. Safety, how you wanna manage the network, and the level of service you need to provide pedestrians. Part six of Guide to Traffic Management has a wee table here that outlines the benefits and considerations of different crossing treatments. And it also includes the types of facilities that may be appropriate on different road classifications as shown in this table. So this is an existing um, table that was um, left in. And also there is a tool that might be useful for you to use and that is the Austroads Facility Selection Tool. By inputting some basic parameters such as road width, vehicle speeds, volumes and other information, it narrows you down to some feasible crossing options. It will give you a range of outputs for each feasible option, including seat delay, safety and pedestrian level of service. But you will still need to consider the feasible options in the context of the street environment and its function in order to arrive at a preferred treatment. This image is a screenshot a part of the outputs from a selection tool made for a made-up scenario. The treatments that are not appropriate are greyed out and for each of the others various outputs are provided. The ones shown are just the pedestrian walkability outputs but there are also economic outputs that are based on the predicted crash rates and vehicle delay calculations for the feasible crossing types. But there are also um, relevant jurisdictional economic evaluation methodologies tied into this as well. So let's move on to location spacing and some sort of high level design details before Anne-Marie talks you through the detail for each crossing type. Not only is the type of crossing important, but where they are located. It's a good idea to refer back to these nine walkable characteristics I mentioned earlier, because crossings that meet those characteristics will help support your network. For example, assuring the crossing can be readily identified by all users as a point of crossing reflects legible, like I mentioned earlier. It's also important to ensure the crossing treatment chosen is safe for the particular street. And at a design level, it might be things like ensuring vegetations don't block visibility of pedestrians. This photo here of a zebra crossing has some vegetation next to it, 
it's important that when you work with the landscape architect and others in your team that ensuring that those plants are kept below a child's height are really important. The alternative to focusing on pedestrian movements to a specific location to cross is an integrated treatment where road users, including pedestrians, all share the space. We will talk more about this in our upcoming webinar about catering for pedestrians in activity centres. A question we are often asked is how frequent should crossings be located? In short, there is really no standard spacing. It is dependent on many factors, including where the desire lines are, which is a function of the destinations and routes people take. Also, network objectives and the types of crossings that might be nearby. Sometimes it's appropriate to provide priority crossings, say a zebra, at selected locations along the street, with some crossing aids in between, such as pedestrian refuse. This accommodates pedestrian, pedestrians who may prefer or require vehicles to give way, but also provides more frequent opportunities for people who are comfortable finding a gap in the traffic. It is helpful to observe where people are crossing or wanting to cross to inform your location and spacing decisions. We discussed this a bit more in our Measuring Pedestrians webinar in June last year. And the image on the slide here was from that webinar. And this shows a survey that was undertaken on Oriental Parade in Wellington, where people counted where people were crossing, which helped inform the upgrade of that street. Here is an example of a town centre main street. There are five crossings in a 250 metre length street between two roundabouts. The zebras are provided where the majority of activities are located, and the other three crossings are refuge islands. There are two refuge islands at the end of the bridge linking the riverbank path. The zebra and refuge islands, uh, refuge island crossings that are located 35 metres apart, which may seem quite close, actually cater for different needs. The refuge island is for those on that uh, riverbank path, but if they want to cross the road, and have priority, then that zebra crossing is very close by. Essentially, that provides choice. This arrangement on the street works very well. There are a number of features that need to be considered when designing your facility. These are outlined in a table in Guide to Road Design Part 4 and summarised here. Aspects such as the crossing should be wide enough to accommodate the expected pedestrian volumes and passing off in opposite directions. The length to cross should be minimised as far as possible to minimise the likely pedestrian exposure. In terms of the orientation of the crossing, ideally it should be at right angles to the carriageways. This is much more legible, particularly for vision impaired pedestrians, and to minimise the crossing distance. If this is not possible, then at least the crossing and queues should be orientated so pedestrians do not have to change direction partway across the road. Finally, the last row of the table highlights access to the crossing. Ensuring step-free access to the crossing, usually by providing curb ramps, is essential, and I'll explain this in a bit more in a minute. As part of our work, we identified some additional features that should be considered, and we have recommended these in the table. These are the three shown here. They include the level of delay that pedestrians incur. This is affected by the type of facility, particularly in the case of traffic signals and how they are phased. Another aspect is whether pedestrians have priority at the crossing. Some pedestrians, such as those with restricted mobility or vision loss, often feel more comfortable when they have priority. And finally, the design vehicle speed is a very important consideration. Raised crossings, for example, are generally safer as they slow vehicle speeds and encourage vehicles to stop if needed. In our next webinar, which is about designing for pedestrians at intersections, I'll go into a bit more detail about the appropriate ramp gradients, etc., to slow vehicle speeds. We won't have time for that today, but please do tune into that next webinar for that. As I mentioned before, ramp curb ramps are needed at most crossings to provide step-free access for pedestrians. When the crossing is flush with the curb, obviously you don't require a curb ramp. Curb ramps should be provided on both sides of the road so pedestrians do not get stranded in the road, as I mentioned before. They should be constructed so they provide a smooth transition between the footpath and the road with no low points where water can collect. And they should be aligned in the direction of travel. This is particularly important for vision impairment 
people with vision impairment as they use that ramp to guide them across the road. The general form of curb ramp is shown dramatically here. Every curb ramp includes the ramp itself, which is where the grade changes, and then you have the landing, which is where the pedestrians move between the ramp and the footpath. There will also be the gutter adjacent to the curb, sometimes known as the fender, and also the approach to the top landing. All of this should provide a smooth change in level between the footpath and the roadway. Ideally, the landing is level with the rest of the footpath, so someone walking along the footpath and not using the curb ramp does not have a change of level to contend with. In the handout, you will find a table that describes the design elements that relate to this drawing, including the principles for each element, as well as dimensions and references to relevant standards. Obviously, you should also be checking with your jurisdictional standards and guidelines, as they may have specifications such as the allowable upstand at the um, fender of the curb. It is important to include tactile ground surface indicators of curb ramps in other locations to assist people who are blind or have low vision to be able to find and use the curb safely. The standards will differ for these depending on your jurisdiction and we will cover tactile pavers a bit, in a bit more detail in our upcoming intersection webinar. Other forms of curb ramp including parallel and combination curb ramps may be appropriate in some situations. For example, when the landing width is too narrow or there are other levels to tie into. These curb, uh, sorry, these designs lower the landing so the minimum width can be achieved. But they also mean that someone walking along the footpath has to go down and back up again, which is not ideal and is less likely to be comfortable for pedestrians. Here is an example of a curb ramp that doesn't have a smooth transition to the, between the gutter and the roadway. It probably did when it was built, however, when roads are resurfaced, often these things are overlooked and no one comes back. In this situation, it would be nice to come back and actually mill that down. I will now hand you over to Anne-Marie, who is going to go through the different types of pedestrian crossings. Thanks, Jeanette. So I'm going to talk through the different crossing types and the design of them, starting with the non-priority crossings. So let's start with curb extensions, which are also known as curb build-outs or outstands. These are where the road carriageway is narrowed by widening the footpath or the verge. This treatment is often installed in conjunction with other treatments like zebra crossings. And the example in this image is a retrofit curb extension where the extension has in fact been landscaped. The most obvious benefit of curb extensions is that they reduce the distance pedestrians have to cross a road and therefore the likelihood of a crash with a vehicle when crossing. Other benefits are, are that it makes it easier for pedestrians and drivers to see each other as pedestrians are more visible when approaching the crossing. They can also be useful to discourage curbside parking, maybe more so than no stopping markings, and they can slow vehicle speeds due to the narrowing of the road, so a traffic calming effect. They're not suitable where the curbside lane needs to be used for moving traffic at times, such as clearways, um, curb extensions, as I said, should be used to support many of the other crossing treatments, including zebras, platforms and refuge islands, to minimise the crossing distance. The image here is in fact a zebra crossing with curb build-outs or extensions. On their, on their own, they don't give priority to pedestrians, so they're not likely to be suitable where there will be lots of people wanting to cross. And here is a diagram showing the general layout of a curb extension. The design details and things to consider are provided in the table in that crossing elements handout. Curb extensions can become pinch points for cyclists if they're using the road, so it's important to consider the roadway width. This is even more important if you combine curb extensions with a pedestrian refuge. And there needs to be some space from where pedestrians cross to any curbside parking to ensure there's um, enough intervisibility between the pedestrians and the cars on the road. This is achieved through the approach and departure lengths to the curb extension, plus you might, might also include no stopping restrictions depending on the depth of the extension. The next type of treatment I'm going to talk about is a pedestrian refuge, also known as pedestrian islands. This is a raised island in the centre of, of the road that enables pedestrians to cross in two stages, so across one traffic direction and then the other. 
The main benefit for pedestrians is that the crossing is under, undertaken in two stages, reducing delay for pedestrians and simplifying the crossing task, as they only need to find a gap in one direction of tra traffic at a time. Things to consider around this crossing treatment is that there needs to be enough space for people to wait in the refuge in the middle of the road, including if they have mobility devices, bikes or other belongings with them. If the refuge will be used by cyclists, then the width and length of the waiting space may need to be even larger. You need to ensure any planting in the refuge doesn't obscure vis visibility between people crossing and vehicles. And also consider that this treatment, again, doesn't give priority to pedestrians, so it won't work for some people and other options should be available nearby. This refuge island shown in the image is at the end of Jeanette Street and was added as part of a cycleway project but it has provided separate crossings for pedestrians at either end of the island. This has been a huge improvement for people crossing the road, as there is a bend in the road to the left of the photo, so it used to be quite difficult to cross in the past. Again, the principles and design elements to consider for each dimension um, in this pedestrian refuge diagram are provided in the handout. Curb extensions can also be provided in, in combination with the pedestrian refuge to reduce the crossing distance, but you will need to consider where cyclists are accommodated because they can be a pinch point. You will have seen refuges where the cut through is angled to orientate a person using it to face the direction of oncoming traffic. This can be done, although it can restrict space from, for manoeuvring devices such as wheelchairs, so you might need to need a wider crossing width and make sure it's easy for people to get through. A median crossing is similar to a pedestrian refuge in that they allow people to cross in two stages. It provides a safe place to wait within the solid median. It can be good to stagger or angle the crossing, as I just mentioned, so that pedestrians face oncoming traffic when approaching the crossing point. This um, is more important in dual lane situations like this one shown on the slide. Alternatively, you can stagger the crossing, as I will cover shortly. The benefits of median crossings are very similar as for pedestrian refuges in that they allow people to cross in two stages, so reducing the delay, and the issues and considerations are also similar. Here is a drawing showing a simple straight-through median crossing. Your handout includes a table outlining the principles and design elements to consider. The space and the median, both the width and the depth, need to be sufficient for the volume of pedestrians and also any devices they may, may be using. And if the crossing will be used by cyclists, it might need to be um, bigger again to accommodate bikes stopping in the, cross, in, in the median. On multi-lane or higher volume roads, then the crossing may be staggered across the two approaches. The left-hand stagger, as shown in this um, diagram, is preferred if the crossing is uncontrolled, as pedestrians will then be facing oncoming traffic whilst looking for a gap to cross. If the crossing is in fact signalised, then the stagger direction can be reversed if other constraints mean it ends up with a better outcome. Either way, it's important that the clear route through the stagger is um, big enough for the likes of mobility scooters and wheelchairs to negotiate through easily. Just a quick reminder to please send through any questions you have on the Q&A and to um, help us, please let us know the slide number that your question relates to if you can. So moving on to the priority crossing types. Firstly, a raised priority crossing. This gives priority to pedestrians without the use of zebra or traffic signals. Drivers and cyclists must give way to people using the crossing by stopping at a hold line on the approach. Just a note that the road rules in some jurisdictions, like New Zealand, do not support this form of crossing, so you'll need to check this. But where they are permitted, these crossings are commonly used when a path in a reserve, for example, intersects with a road. In many cases, they might be implemented as part of a cycleway project, but as the path is shared, the pedestrians also get the advantage of the priority crossing. This example was installed as part of a cycleway project. The benefit of these crossings is that they give priority to pedestrians, but without the use of a zebra or traffic signals, which have more traffic control device requirements than raised priority crossings. For these crossings to work, the traffic volumes need to be reasonably low. We've said ideally 
less than a thousand vehicles per day. And more importantly, the vehicle speeds need to be very low, no more than 20 kilometers an hour. The low speeds can be achieved by narrowing the road, for example, with curb extensions, and also ensuring the ramp gradients to the platform require low vehicle speeds to negotiate. We'll be talking a bit more about that in our next webinar. As the crossing is raised, there should be a smooth transition from the adjoining footpath to the crossing at footpath grade, and this may require modifications to the curb drainage. Here's a diagram showing the general layout of a raised priority crossing. Your handout includes a table outlining the design requirements and principles to consider. And as I said, the ramp gradient is important to ensure vehicle speeds are slow so that drivers are willing to stop to give um, priority to pedestrians using the crossing. Now I'll move on to zebra crossings, a common crossing type, officially known as pedestrian crossings. These use white stripes and other traffic control devices to communicate to drivers that they must give way to pedestrians. It relies on the driver seeing a pedestrian and slowing or stopping if necessary to allow them to cross. So they're not really suitable on multi-lane multi roads or higher speed roads. Using them with other treatments like curb extensions or on a raised platform improves the safety of zebra crossings. And I'll talk about raised zebras in a minute. Zebra crossings rely on drivers seeing pedestrians, as I said, and slowing or stopping. So visibility is very important. It's also important that the crossing is used frequently by, by pedestrians. So there's an expectation that vehicles will um, encounter a pedestrian and may have to stop or give way. Safety can be improved by providing curb extensions or refuge, which can also improve visibility and reduce the crossing distance. Here is a diagram showing the general layout of, of a zebra crossing and your handout again includes a table that discusses some design requirements and principles for each element. Just a reminder that zebra crossings have a number of traffic control device requirements, including signs and markings, so check these. And breaking news from New Zealand is that our zebra crossing marking specification now aligns to the Australian marking, so making the crossing more conspicuous we'll have 600 millimeter white paint stripes with 600 millimeter gaps between them. So that's a good um, win there. Moving to raised zebra crossings, also known as wombat crossings in Australia. This is a zebra crossing on a raised platform or flat top road hump. This improves conspicuity of the zebra and also reduces vehicle approach speeds. Although you need to make sure that approaching drivers are alerted that there is a ramp. There are various markings used to highlight the ramp um, and these vary between the different jurisdictions. So you'll need to check what they are for your particular location. So in terms of benefits, a wombat crossing generally improves indivisibility between people crossing and drivers and also reduces approach speeds. They can also provide a more comfortable crossing by giving a smooth transition from the footpath to the crossing obviously noting that drainage modifications may be needed to facilitate this. The gradient of the platform ramp depends on the context and what vehicle speeds you're trying to achieve over the crossing. This should be at least a safe system speed, so a maximum of 30 k's an hour, but it could be lower in high pedestrian areas like activity centres. And here is a diagram showing the general layout of a wombat crossing. Again, please refer to the handout for the design requirements and principles for each element noted there. Moving to mid-block signalised crossings or pedestrian operated signals. Um, these provide priority to pedestrians as the traffic is stopped by a red light and a phase is dedicated to the crossing movement. They can be appropriate in multi-lane situations as well as in activity centres as shown in, in these examples. We found that signals are being installed as part of cycleway projects, but they also benefit pedestrians as this um, form of crossing may not have been there or been provided just for pedestrians, but providing it for cyclists and pedestrians um, is a great outcome. These crossings need to be carefully designed because of the absence of usual intersection queues. So this might require mast, arm or median island signals to be installed, especially in multi-lane situations. 
Best practice is to allow pedestrians to cross the full roadway in one go, rather than requiring them to stop in the median, if there is, even if there is one. Where the median is wide, say more than three and a half metres, and there are multiple traffic lanes, it may be appropriate for pedestrians to stop in the median. Here's a typical diagram of a mid-block signalised crossing, where the median is narrow and pedestrians would cross the whole roadway in one go. The handout has some information about the design elements to consider in terms of this type of crossing. And here's a drawing showing the layout of a mid-block signalised crossing with a stagger in the median, so more likely in a multi-lane situation where the carriageway is a lot wider. Unlike a stagger in an uncontrolled median crossing that I talked about earlier, the stagger direction here can be either way as pedestrians do not need to be facing oncoming traffic because they don't need to find a gap. They will be told when to cross. It is important to make sure again that there is enough width through the whole stagger for pedestrians and any wheeled devices or even bicycles that might be used using the crossing. For most mid-block signals, the phasing is quite simple with pedestrian and vehicle movements running alternately. However, there, are, there is a range of smart crossing technology out there to minimise wait times and delays to both people crossing and also vehicles. The Guide to Traffic Management Part 9 provides guidance on Pelican and Puffin operations and other signal timing and phasing treatments that support pedestrian priority, such as countdown timers and detector systems. Countdown timers are becoming more popular, particularly in town centre or activity centre locations. While these may provide a greater sense of comfort for pedestrians and reduce pedestrian non-compliance in some instances, they do not significantly improve the level of service for pedestrians, so they should be complemented by other measures like improved signal responsiveness. And finally, grade separated facilities, such as an overpass or a bridge or an underpass for a tunnel. These remove conflict between pedestrian and vehicle traffic. So the benefits of separating the crossing by grade is that pedestrians do not have to wait to cross and vehicles are also not delayed. They can be a good way uh, to mitigate severance created by heavily trafficked or fast moving traffic or waterways or railway lines, but they are expensive and they also have other issues that need to be dealt with for pedestrians. They can add to the walking distance for pedestrians because they require a grade change, for example, up, then down, or down, then up. And they may not meet desire lines because of them being located infrequently, making them less desirable. It can then be tempting for pedestrians to attempt to cross at grade, so that needs to be addressed. They can also result in security issues, for example, providing entrapment locations. So crime prevention through environmental design issues need to be addressed. I've included a link there to the SEPTED guidelines for New Zealand as a reference for this, but I do know other jurisdictions have similar guidelines if you're interested in that aspect. And finally, crossing uh, other crossing types. Firstly, crossings for children or school crossings. These are obviously located near schools to assist children to cross before and after the school day. They differ around the country, um, and so you'll need to refer to your relevant design guidance in your jurisdiction for these crossings. But in terms of the general benefits of these crossings, they give priority to pedestrians when they operate. So this is especially good for young people who may not have the ability to cross a road by themselves by finding a gap in the traffic. These crossings can operate on zebra crossings, so they revert to a zebra when they don't have the children crossing flags, or they can be located on a narrowed roadway so pedestrians must give way when the children's crossing is not operating. The treatment type depends on how the crossing might be used by other people and when and where it is located. So maybe think back to those context questions that Jeanette went through earlier to help you with that aspect. And finally, a brief introduction to crossing railways. There is a bit of information in Guide to Traffic Management Part 6, including a section on path crossings of railways. Essentially, separating pedestrian movements from railways through grade separation provides the highest degree of protection, but it's really provided except at railway stations due to the high capital cost. 
that also often results in longer journey distances for, for pedestrians compared to a direct crossing of the railway. The Australian Level Crossing Assessment Model, known as ALCAM, is a safety assessment tool that is used in Australia and New Zealand to prioritise railway level crossings according to their comparative safety risk. It can also help identify optimum safety improvements for individual sites. Level crossings for pedestrians and also cyclists can be combined with those for vehicles or be separate from vehicles depending on desire lines. In terms of design guidance, the document shown here provides design considerations and standard designs for level crossings located on footpaths, shared paths and cycle paths. It is a New Zealand document but can be used as a good practice reference guide in Australia. For all railway level crossings, the path of pedestrians to and across the tracks must be defined clearly. This can be done through signage, delineation and physical measures, and taking care to ensure that the facility is accessible to all people, including those with disabilities. So in summary, uh, we've put together a slide that shows where the new guidance is and where it can be found. So here is um, a table showing the content that we've talked about today and where the information can be found, either in the Guide to Traffic Management, the Guide to Road Design, or in the handout that we've provided on your toolbar today. And that's it for us today. Um, over back to Ekaterina for some questions. Um, thank you very much, Jeanette. I'm just going to full control back to myself so everyone can see my screen. Hopefully everyone can now see my screen. Yep, uh, it worked, fantastic. Um, thank you very much, um, a very interesting presentation and we have very many questions, so I will jump straight into it. Um, and we will start with the question in relation to slide um, 17. So do mid-block crossings, um, all types in urban areas need to be supported by the road rules to limit uh, motor vehicle approach speeds to 30 um, kilometers per hour, as um, um, is being proposed in the European Union. So what are your thoughts on uh, these? I guess we can recognize that we're all on a journey um, at the moment towards a safe system um, network. And so ideally, yes, everywhere that there are pedestrians um, we should have low vehicle travel speeds, but we recognise that that is not necessarily going to be achievable uh, immediately. So um, working towards that is, is definitely where we want to get to if we have a safe system approach. And often it's not necessarily about the speed limit, but just getting that speed environment suitable. So even within a 50k zone, you might try and get the speeds down um, for a crossing so that it does align but yeah. Thanks Janet. Uh, a very quick question um, about the pedestrian facility tool. Um, so does it incorporate does it incorporate considerations for cycling crossings? Do no, you have to remember? No it doesn't. Okay all right um, next question. Um, so um, in many European cities, zebra crossings are implemented on every branch of every intersection, um, signaling to oncoming drivers that they have to yield to pedestrians. Um, should something like that be recommended for Australia as well? Interestingly, that's something we're going to talk about in our next webinar on intersections on Tuesday. Okay. So please um, uh, join us uh, uh, for our next uh, session next week. All right, uh, next question. Um, so we have a border on slide 29. Um, and the question is about, so this border on the, um, on the right. Um, so it seems, um, crossing seems um, undefined. So there are tactiles, but um, there is no uh, walking leg signs. So are there any sort of conflict right of way issues there? 
in that particular example, um, that raised platform just slows the traffic down. Generally, what I've observed with that crossing is that some vehicles may stop, and again, that comes back to this courtesy crossing concept. Um, mm -hmm. But most people in New Zealand are pretty used to looking to make sure someone's going to stop, but it doesn't have um, the walking leg sign. In fact, we don't have a walking leg sign in New Zealand. We do have a sign for approaching zebras. But and, this is not a zebra. But the zebra in this photo is in the background. So if someone didn't feel comfortable using that two-stage crossing, they could go down to the zebra crossing. We do have a, a, a sign with a pedestrian symbol on it that we can also use in some situations on the approach. But in these town centre environments, we're trying to, I guess, reduce the amount of signs because it sort of clutters up the urban design elements of the, of the design. So, um, yeah, I hope that uh, answered that question. Thanks, Jeanette. Um, so there was a comment from one of the participants um, about the appropriateness of um, non-priority crossings and the risk that people might assume that they have the priority to cross. So how to approach those situations? Yeah. So there are different ways of doing that and it, um, it can be done by ensuring that the surfacing of the crossing is a different um, colour and texture to the footpath, mm -hmm. so you still feel like you're stepping onto the road. Um, other cues can be that you put tactile indicators, so that's also indicating that um, you're stepping onto the road. So there are ways of making, not making sure, but mitigating against um, people thinking that they have priority when in fact they don't. Thank you very much. That's good that you mentioned colour, because there was a question um, about the use of colour and different uh, textures for crossings. So um, what your advice would be on that, how to approach sort of, I guess, thinking about it, whether you decide to use colour or what texture? Well, the first thing I'd suggest is that you need to check your jurisdictional requirements because there might be some um, guidelines on that. I know in New Zealand there are about what colours you can or sh should use and ensuring that you don't put colour that can be misinterpreted as a traffic control device when it's not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there is work being done in New Zealand for um, what we call courtesy crossings, which will give a bit more guidance than what currently exists. Um, and like Amory said, we also have some recently released guidelines around roadwork art as well, which colors, uh, covers colours. But I think the question is probably more about what we use at crossings, which is a work in progress here in New Zealand. Thanks, um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. I've just jumped to slide 32. Um, and the question here is, so what investigation has been undertaken in relation to the position of the tactile indicators on the curb ramps? So there are standards for um, where the tactile, where the warning tactiles are shown there need to be located in relation to the curb. In New Zealand, we have a document called RTS 14 that details all those dimensions and it's 300 millimetres from the edge of curb, if anyone wants to know. Um, the Australian standard, I don't know off the top of my head, but I imagine it will be a similar um, dimension, but yeah, you need to look that up. Yeah, and I think possibly that question might relate to the fact that in that photo, the nearest tactile pavers don't look parallel to the curb. And the reason for that is that will be the curb that's actually the start of a radius of that corner and therefore if you put it parallel with the curb it would actually point people more in the direction of that yellow holding rail. So it's all about aligning it to the direction of travel. Thanks Jeanette. Um, so next question is uh, in relation to slide 38. So how do you achieve a curb build-outs when there are on-road bicycle paths that end up being pinched? So that photo is actually a good example because there are on-road cycle lanes. So what mm -hmm. they've done there is they've made sure that the width between the curves accommodates the traffic lane width 
and the bicycle lane width. So if there is no bicycle lane, um, we've actually put in, I think in the handout, you'll see that in that situation, you need to provide a wide enough traffic lane that cyclists can travel side by side with vehicles, which is usually a minimum of 4.2, desirably 4.5 metres in terms of the traffic lane width. As soon as you go narrower than that into that kind of three and a half metre lane width, you're getting into what mm -hmm. we call an in-between lane width, which is doesn't really send a clear message to anyone about how they should travel through there. Thank you very much. Um, so another question um, here is in relation to the next slide. Um, do you know of any guidance for combining uh, curb extensions with raised um, crossings, um, Austroad's guidance or um, any other um, guidelines that you're aware of? Curb extensions and raised and raised uh, platforms, yeah. Wombat crossings or just race safety, any other types of race safety platforms? We've mentioned that they can go together. I don't think there's a diagram showing them together, but you would look at the information for both and, and combine them. I don't yeah. think there's anything else. And I think probably the key thing with the, the race platform and a curb build out or actually anywhere it's adjacent to the curb, you've got to make that decision about whether it's flush with the curb or whether you're going to have it as a curb cut down and therefore the ramp, the platform has um, a gradient up before it becomes flat and then it goes down again, which is not ideal. It's better to have it flush. But often there are limitations around um, stormwater flow and what have you, because as soon as you put a platform in, does block that function um, that curb build-outs form. But even curb build-outs themselves may interrupt the flow depending on the gradient of your street. So there's, there's a couple of different ways you can do um, platforms between curbs. Thanks, Jeanette. Um, we have a few people who are asking to clarify the difference between a pedestrian refuge and the median crossing. They are very similar. I guess a median crossing is if there's a, uh, a long raised median and you put a cut through through it, um, whereas a pedestrian refuge or island is just a small piece of raised section of road um, and then there might be a flush median or, or no median. So that's why the benefits are quite similar and I guess the design of them is quite similar as yeah. well, in terms for pedestrians at least. And it's potentially a terminology um, issue. So in, in this instance, we've used the word refuge in relation to an island, but some jurisdictions may call a cut through on a median a refuge as well, because essentially it is providing a refuge. But mm -hmm. for this um, guidance, we have used refuge island terminology and then median. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, here's the question about the design of pedestrian refuge refuges. So um, can can it be provided on a four-lane road with two traffic lanes on um, in each direction? A refuge island? A refuge, yeah, pedestrian refuge island. Mm. On that a four-lane road. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not that common. Um, <laughs> I guess it all comes down to, um, again, the context, the, the speed limit of that road. Um, any kind of crossing um, on a high-speed four-lane road is, is not um, a good idea. Um, I'm just trying to think of an example where that they probably have been used in urban areas, but ideally you'd want the speeds to be very low. Thanks, Jeanette. Uh, we will stay on the topic of um, pedestrian refuges. So, uh, another question: Should they have overrunnable curbs or non-mountable curbs? So, overrunnable curbs or non-mountable curbs? Non-mountable curbs. Hmm. So, it, again, it comes down to what the jurisdictions use. So, here in Christchurch, the specification for refuge islands does have a um, chamfered. So, it has a solid upright and then a chamfer. Um, mm -hmm. So rather than a vertical curve, it has a small vertical and then a chamfer. Um, 
I think this is done because occasionally you might have a large truck that needs to do something, but you really don't want to discourage that. Uh, you want to discourage um, having to have vehicles mount them. So again, I think it just comes down to what your jurisdiction has in their refuge island specifications. So just acknowledging the, these are general layout diagrams, they're not specifications. Most jurisdictions do have a specification because they need to provide those to contractors and depending on what curb type is um, specified in your jurisdiction, that's what would be used. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so next question is in relation to slide 45. Um, so what is the comparative safety performance between a central refuge and uh, curb extensions on both sides or sort of like using both together? So do you have... I don't know off the top of my head. No, not off the top of my head, but obviously combining them is, is the better outcome. Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably. Thank you. I know there are um, crash reduction factors, which might be what the person is asking, um, available to look up to probably give that answer. Mm -hmm. We just put more off the top of our head. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm not sure if we have already answered that, but there is a question here um, about the maximum of uh, travel lanes. Uh, limited for consideration of median crossings. So is it safe to use more than two traffic lanes for each tier? I think we've covered that before. Um, so, well, median crossings. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so median crossings and maximum yeah, of travel lanes. Yeah. Median crossings are probably more common where there are um, two lanes in each direction, so four lanes. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it comes down to um, you know minimising people's speeds. But also noting that on a lot of those types of roads, there are also regular signalised intersections. Mm -hmm. So there are still options for people who do not want to cross two lanes of traffic. Um, I certainly wouldn't on some of the roads around here, especially if I was um, with a child. So. Mm -hmm. As we've kind of said, it's all about options and there may be situations where you provide a cut through and a median on a multi-lane road because there might be some kind of need for it um, in terms of a desire line, but it's important to make sure that there's actually a control crossing not that far away. All right, um, thanks Jeanette. Um, so another question is about um, visibility of um, raised um, crossing platforms. So how visible are they at night? Um, maybe if you go to the next slide. Mm -hmm. This one? Uh, the next one, which has got the... The next one? That one? Yeah. So the thing with any kind of situation where you're providing um, a change in the curb or a crossing, the team should be getting a lighting assessment undertaken. So I know that um, projects I've been involved with, as soon as you put in a new crossing and other changes on, on the street, a lighting assessment is undertaken. And mm -hmm. that will then look at how it complies in terms of the Australian New Zealand standard lighting. And in most instances, um, there will be an upgrade to an existing lighting pole that's nearby or a new one put in. So again, it comes down to getting advice from the appropriate professionals about lighting. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much, um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. We have one minute left um, before the end of the webinar, so I think we might wrap up here. Um, and before we do that, I will just touch on um, on our schedule, webinar schedule, um, for the next few months. Um, so in the next three sessions um, on pedestrian planning and design, we will cover intersections, activity centres and residential areas. Um, don't forget to register for, uh, for those sessions. As was mentioned today, we have published uh, guidance on raised safety platforms and we will talk about the design and operation of those devices on the 4th of March. Uh, so join us for that webinar. And the full list of our sessions uh, is published on our website, so please visit for 
more information and to register. And as usual, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on our screen. So please take a few minutes to fill it in and let us know what you liked or you didn't like. It's really helpful for us to um, shape our future webinar program. So thanks again, everyone. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks.